going on, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of the Dolphins in Depth podcast. I'm Daniel Yafusi. Thanks so much for tuning in. And after a rapid fire start to the offseason, things have started to quiet down a little bit for the Dolphins. There is some notable news in, in the past week or so, uh, most notably Mike McDaniel officially finalizing his coaching staff for the 2022 season. And there are some big names, some names that Dolphins fans are very familiar with, and we'll touch on that, uh, as well as some other offseason checkpoints uh, and check marks. Uh, Tuesday being the first day that teams can officially apply the franchise tag onto players. The Dolphins have a pair of uh, pending unrestricted free agents who might get that. So we'll talk about that. I'm writing solo on the pod today. So we're going to get right into things, starting with, like I said, Mike McDaniel, the 2022 coaching staff is officially set. Um, and I know that over the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of uh, kind of leaks and reports. We've been covering it um, here at the Miami Herald as the various names have kind of trickled out, um, but it's all put together. Um, and I know now is the time that we kind of look back and we break that down and we say, uh, do you bring in good names? What's missing? Um, who's going to be the most impactful position coach? Uh, for me, if I had to boil it down to a grade I'm going to give it a B plus. I really like the coaching staff that he brought in. And again, we only know so much about a lot of these coaches, but when you read on their various backgrounds and you start to kind of peel back the, the layers of the onions, you can really see where they fit in McDaniel's grand plan for this team, specifically on offense, where he's really going to have his hands full to, to really prop up that offense and get the most out of a quarterback to a thing about Loa. And uh, I know we spoke a lot about uh, a little bit about this last week, but I kind of want to go back to really break down some of the names now that it's official and really talk about their, their background, where they fit uh, in this uh, team, uh, this scheme and what's next. And, and that really starts with the offensive coordinator, Frank Smith. Um, he was previously the run game coordinator and offensive line coach for the LA, uh, the Los Angeles Chargers. And he also had a lot of experience with developing tight ends. And I feel like, you know, while McDaniel said he's going to call the plays in Miami, I felt like his offensive coordinator uh, pick was like so important because this is the person that he's going to be developing the game plan with. That offensive coordinator has to work with the, the rest of the offensive players to implement that scheme on a week to week basis. So while he might not have um, big responsibilities on game day in terms of calling the plays, I mean, you want somebody who's like, joined at the hip with you and really aligned with you in your vision. So when you think about the offense that Mike McDaniel is going to bring, he's going to bring that zone running scheme that, you know, the 49ers used a lot that he's really been involved with his entire coaching career. Um, and it only makes sense that you get an offensive coordinator and a, a coach who has experience with the run game, with the offensive line, which we all know needs a lot of work in Miami and the tight ends too, which, because in this offense, the Titans are going to have a big role, not only catching the ball, but uh, but blocking. So, again, I don't know too much about Frank Smith. I hadn't really heard the name until um, he popped up as, you know, interviewing for the job. And then he eventually got the job. Um, but when you look at the background, I really do like how uh, his background kind of meshes with the, the vision for this Mike McDaniel led offense. Uh, next is and, you know, you don't talk too much about offensive line coaches, but in Miami, uh, the offensive line is, is, is a real problem. So that's definitely a point of focus. And I really liked the hire of Matt Applebaum. Um, he was previously the offensive line coach at Boston College. Um, but, you know, in his short time there, I mean, he has a real proven track record with developing linemen that make it to the to the NFL. You know, in the past two years, he's had seven all-conference selection players um, 
on that on that offensive line. Um, and notably in the 2022 draft, he's got, a, a, I think, a trio of linemen who are probably going to get selected or, or um, you know, notable draft prospects. You know, the top two are probably Zion Johnson and Alec Lindstrom. Zion Johnson is a guy who, you know, he could probably be he might be picked by the Dolphins with their 29th overall pick. Um, but um, really, even more importantly, is he has a lot of familiarity with the zone scheme run concepts that the Dolphins are going to implement under McDaniel. You know, they did that a lot at Boston College. Um, you know, I probably would have liked to see someone with more NFL experience, like throughout the the hiring process. And even after um, McDaniel was hired, I thought Mike Munchak was a guy who would have been a perfect fit with this team because he's someone who has a proven track record in the NFL. Um, but I feel like at the end of the day, you want somebody who can teach and develop. And it seems like Matt Applebaum is someone that checks that boxes. I mean, um, the Dolphins are probably going to invest a lot of money, um, you know, to upgrade that offensive line. They're probably going to draft an offensive lineman or two. But there's a lot of really young guys on there on that team right now that I don't think that, you know, Chris Greer, um, you know, Mike McDaniel wants to give up on, whether that's um, Austin Jackson or Liam Eikenberg. We know Rob Hunt, um, it seems like a, a real legitimate NFL starter, but I don't think that they just want to completely like overhaul the offensive line and get four or five new starters. I, I don't think that that's the vision. I think that they do want to see what they have there, maybe with some better coaching um, and, and better teaching and better development. Maybe you can see like a respectable offensive line. You know, it's not going to be a one-year process. I don't think that we're just going to magically snap our fingers and then this offensive line is like you know a top five offensive line in the league um but again the dolphins invested a lot of draft capital in those guys and i don't know like you can't tell me that like all those guys are scrubs and all those guys can't play like i i do think that there is something to um there is something to be gained and something to get out of a lot of those guys so uh, maybe apple bomb is that guy maybe not um that's definitely something that i'm going to be watching out for uh, once we get uh, into training camp when we start to see these guys up close uh, next is uh, the quarterbacks coach and pass game coordinator, Daryl Bevel. And this was probably the biggest name from a NFL coaching standpoint. You know, he previously um, was in interim coach of the Jaguars after Urban Meyer was fired. Um, he has a lot of experience as an offensive coordinator working with the Vikings, the Packers, uh, the Seahawks, the Lions. I mean, he's worked with some big name quarterbacks, whether that's Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, um, Matthew Stafford, Russell Wilson. I mean, he won a Super Bowl with Russell Wilson calling the plays in Seattle. Um, so you definitely like to have somebody in, in the quarterback room, specifically the quarterbacks coach, who is like seen and been with some of the best QBs. And in some cases, he's brought out the best out of them. You know, Brett Favre, and, you know, when, when he kind of came back out of retirement and went to the Vikings, um, his quarterback rating, he had his highest quarterback rating when he was with Bevel in Minnesota. Um, again, he won a Super Bowl with Russell Wilson. I mean, he had a lot of really, really good years with Russell Wilson. Um, so you really can't ask for more in terms of like, a guy who has experience and a guy who has been there, um, you know, he's not going to be the offensive coordinator. I know he kind of got some scrutiny in Seattle because of you know, calling plays. And, you know, you, we all remember um, when he made the play call in the Super Bowl against the Patriots to, to throw the ball at the goal line instead of hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. Um, you know, this is like just a positional role where he's going to be developing to a, he's going to be working with the pass game and kind of developing that, which also needs to be built up. Um, so I really like that. I mean, again, in terms of experience, NFL coaching experience. I mean, outside of Eric Studesville, who is remaining as running backs coach, Daryl Bevel has the most experience, NFL experience out of anybody here. So I really do like that. Um, and then rounding out on the offense, uh, two guys I want to touch on who we've touched on before is John Embry, who's coming as tight ends coach and assistant head coach, and Wes Welker, who we all know spent his first couple of years in Miami, went to the Patriots, won a couple of Super Bowls. Uh, 
joined coaching, joined the coaching ranks with the 49ers. And he's coming over uh, to be the wide receivers coach. Now with Embry, I mean, he's an experienced tight ends coach who has, um, you know, a track record of developing some, you know, some great tight ends, you know, whether that was in college and um, developing some Mackey award winners and, and even in the NFL with developing George Kittle. I mean, uh, John Embry was the only tight ends coach that George Kittle has known. And um, he had a really heartfelt um, Instagram post where he said, starting my career with you was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. Um, so in an offense that is, again, really going to be reliant on those uh, tight ends, you'd love to get somebody who has experience bringing the most out of them. Um, we're going to talk about Mike Kosecki in the second half of this pod, um, but but you'd love, you know, the prospects of him working with a guy like John Embry um, or maybe even Hunter Long, who really didn't have a great rookie season. He, he didn't really show much because he didn't get a lot of playing time, but you love the idea uh, of a tight ends coach with, the pedigree of John Embry potentially working with Hunter Long and getting the most out of that former third round pick. So I really like that move. And then obviously Wes Welker. I mean, he's a, he's a proven wide receiver, you know, one of the best slot receivers to, to ever play the game. And he has familiarity with that 49er scheme. And um, I mean, this is kind of surface level, but I just like that it creates excitement. I mean, we're going to, I'm about to talk about some of the defensive coaches um, that he brought along in Patrick Sertain and Sam Madison and just the excitement um, that it creates. I mean, I think it's cool that uh, now obviously McDaniel has the relationship with Wes Walker dating back to the 49ers. But it's cool that he brings in somebody who the fans can like instantly recognize and say, oh, I remember when Wes Walker was catching passes in Miami. And um, again, it just creates a level of excitement that I don't think that Dolphins fans have necessarily always had. Now, when we shift to the defensive side, um, the defense definitely got more of a tune-up than the the big overhaul that the offense got in. Um, like we said last week, the most notable move was keeping defensive coordinator Josh Boyer in that same role. Um, this is definitely the most questionable staff move that McDaniel made. I mean, he explained it as, you know, one that was based off of um, the continuity that he saw with um, that defense and, and Josh Boyer with his players. Um but there are fair questions to ask, like how much of a role did Boyer play in the first half of the season when we saw an offense or saw a defense that really didn't play up to its potential in the second half of the season when, um, you know, they turned things around. They were one of the best units in the entire league. You know, there are some fair questions as to like, did Brian Flores call plays? Did he have more of a role um, or more responsibilities kind of divvied out to some positional coaches? I mean, those are all very, very fair questions. Um, and again, I, I don't want to say Josh Boyer is on the hot seat, but there's definitely going to be more eyes on him this like to say like to show, uh, I should say that, you know, he really can lead this defense without Flores. We all knew that this was Brian Flores' defense, you know, when he was here for three years in Miami, but now that he's gone, I think he'll definitely have more agency to really like put his imprint on this defense. And I'm curious, you know, we're, we're talking to all the coordinators and the assistant coaches um, Wednesday afternoon, recording this right now, Tuesday afternoon, and we're going to be speaking to the assistants uh, Wednesday afternoon. And I'm really interested to, to hear from Josh Boyer, like how much, does he plan on changing? Um, I know Mike McDaniel said, if, it, if it's not broke, you don't fix it. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say that this defense was perfect, um, you know, throughout 2021. I think that there are some, some tweaks that can be made to like get it running more smoothly, running more consistently over the course of a 17 game schedule. So I really do want to see uh, what Boyer's vision uh, is for this defense in 2022. 
Uh, now, along with keeping Boyer, uh, Mike McDaniel kept um, some position coaches, notably defensive line coach Austin Clark, linebacker coach Anthony Campanile. Um, this was a move that was expected, um, you know, after Brian Flores was fired and the um, uh, Dolphins decision makers were looking for a successor. I mean, they wanted to keep most of this defense intact. They wanted to keep a lot of the uh, position coaches intact. Um, and in Clark and Campanile, I mean, you have two position coaches who had instrumental roles in the development of, you know, their respective position players. So I really do like that. Um, but really the biggest move of really the, the entire coaching staff was bringing in, um, you know, some, some two former, a pair of Dolphins greats um, and Sam Madison and Patrick Sertain. Sam Madison, who was previously coaching uh, defensive backs with the Chiefs, he's joining the team as cornerbacks coach and pass game specialist, and Patrick Sertain, um, who who's previously uh, head coach at um, American Heritage, um, he's joining as a defensive assistant. Um, so, you know, while this is definitely a nostalgic move, I know that a lot of um, Dolphins fans who remember um, the early 90s, and uh, sorry, the late 90s, uh, 1990s and the early 2000s, I mean, they're going to remember um, the great cornerback tandem that Madison and Sertain, you know, came together to form. But this isn't just a nostalgic move. I mean, both have legitimate coaching experience. Like I said, Madison with the Chiefs, Sertain um, on the high school level. Um, and, and I just like that. It kind of adds another level of accountability. I mean, these are people who have been with the organization in, in its better years. I mean, the past few decades have not been very good to the Dolphins and their fans. Um, but you have two guys in Madison and Sertain. And I have to check, you know, they were around the last time the Dolphins won a playoff game. So they can like, they know the standard. You know, I was, I was thinking like, McDaniel was on a roll, you know, he brought in Sam Madison and he brought in Sertain and I'm like, Hey, let's, let's bring Zach Thomas and, and, and Jason Taylor and just, just get, get everyone back together. Uh, but again, on a more serious note, I just like that. Um, it adds another level uh, of accountability with people who have been in the organization. Um, I think that it's a really neat story. You know, you have two great cornerbacks, Dolphins cornerbacks and Sam Madison and Patrick Sertain. And now they're working with, you know, like the next generation of great uh, Dolphins cornerbacks and Xavier Howard and Byron Jones. Um, so again, I think that Mike McDaniel did a really, really good job in terms of filling out this, uh, excuse me, this coaching staff. There were a lot of questions about, you know, his youth only being like 38, late 30s, how much experience, how much connections um, was he going to be able to kind of tap into? And I think you really saw him tap into a lot of different layers of those of those connections. I mean, he's brought in um, assistants that he's worked with in the past, uh, people who he like cross paths with when he was in when he was Yale, when he was kind of in his early coaching coaching days. Um, and again, this coaching staff isn't, you know going to be, you know, static, you know, it might change, um, you know, from year to year. Um, obviously, you would expect, you know, some kind of attrition, you know, guys leave, you bring in other guys, some people move on to better coaching situations. Uh, but for an initial coaching staff, um, I think Mike McDaniel did a really, really good job. And again, it's going to be interesting to kind of see what the vision is um, for, you know, various, you know, the coordinators, the position coaches, how they see themselves fitting in. It's going to be interesting to hear that um, when we speak to the coaches on Wednesday afternoon. And of course, we'll have all that coverage um, at the Miami Herald, miamiherald.com. All right, so we're going to take a short break, but in the second half of the pod, we're going to discuss the franchise tag Tuesday, February 22nd. That's the uh, first day that teams can start applying the franchise tag on players. Um, and again, the Dolphins have a pair of players who, you know, you would figure are strong candidates to get that tag. So in the second half, uh, we're going to break it down and I'm going to tell you what I think the Dolphins should do. So stay locked with us.
You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What's going on, everybody? Still here talking all things Dolphins. Uh, first half, we talked about Mike McDaniel's coaching staff. I gave my thoughts on the group that he's assembled for the 2022 season. Uh, but we're going to get into more offseason talk. Um, about a week away from the combine, about three-ish weeks away from free agency where things are really going to start to pick up. Um, but Tuesday, February 22nd is, is a big day. This is the first day that um, the franchise tag window is open. It opens February 22nd and it closes May 8th. So the Dolphins have until May 8th um, to apply the franchise tag on any players, any pending free agents, I should say, um, that that would hit the market in the coming weeks. And as you all probably know, the top candidates for that are Mike Gusecki, uh, tight end Mike Gusecki and defensive and Emmanuel Agba. Um, both these players are coming off career years in 2021. Uh, Gusecki setting a career high in catches and yards, near, nearly setting franchise records uh, for catches and yards in Agba himself matching uh, his nine sacks from 2020, as well as setting career highs in quarterback hits, quarterback hits and deflections. Um, if you look at the franchise number for the various positions uh, for Agba, who's a defensive end, obviously it would come down to like 20 mil, you know, for the franchise tag, it's usually the average of um, the top five of your position. So that's a pretty hefty tag for Agba edge players, edge rushers, pass rushers there. That's a premium position in the NFL. I mean, we just saw it in the Super Bowl with the, the Rams and the way they were able to apply pressure. Those guys get paid a lot of money, so uh, it's not going to come cheap if the Dolphins want to place the franchise tag on him. If they want to do the transition tag, which is a little different, um, offers the chance for him to kind of sign an offer sheet with another team. That would come at 16 mil. Um, for Gusecki, the franchise tag would be about 10.8 million, and the trans excuse me, the transition tag would be about nine million dollars. Um, one thing I'll say is money is not an issue for the Dolphins. Um, they're projected to have about $56 million according to over the cap. Um, and they're going to have the opportunity to free more money with, um, you know, potential trades, restructures of contracts, or just releasing guys outright. But again, I mean, if you're the Dolphins, you don't want to spend it the wrong way. You know, I, I, I'm just 24. Um, my parents are still getting it into my head now, you know, just because you're making a little bit more money, just because you've got a little bit more money doesn't mean you want to spend it the wrong way. Um, so again, while the Dolphins might be at the top of the league in terms of the cap room, um, you know, they want to be, I mean, you want them to be very, very careful. And I, I want to say almost thrifty with the way that they spend this money. Um, ultimately, I, I think this comes down to a matter of philosophy and principle. And we talked about it last week um, with Gisecki and kind of the way he fits into this offense. Um, you know, right now with a franchise tag worth $11 million, I mean, I think that that's like 
more than fine. Um, but there's questions about, you know, giving him a long-term deal and, you know, where he fits in this system. I mean, we all know that he's not a great blocker, um, you know, for it's just kind of the, that's just kind of the the knock on him at this point. He's not a great blocker. He's talked about it a lot. He said he's trying to get better at it, but you know I think he also knows and he, he's he's admitted. You know I'm getting really paid. I'm getting paid to to catch passes. Um, so again, there's fair questions on you know this limitations in the scheme, how much it might inhibit the effectiveness of the scheme, and whether he can be used fully. I mean, you don't want to pay a guy top dollar if he's only going to play like 50, 60 percent of your snaps. I mean, you want somebody that's going to be there every single down um, uh, when possible. So I think that, you know, for the Dolphins, the question is, can you find similar production um, and possibly a better fit at that price? You know, if you're going to pay uh, Mike Gusecki 14 mil, 15 mil, which I think a long term deal, you know, might come down to 15 mil per year, 14 mil per year. You know, can you find somebody on the open market who you'll pay just around that money, but you'll be able to use them all the time? You know, can they block in your scheme? Can they provide um, similar production as a pass catcher or even maybe go the draft route? I mean, um, there's no Kyle Pitts in the 2022 draft, but there are some really talented, um, you know, all around tight ends. And the question is, can you find somebody that you can get on a cheap rookie contract that can provide you similar production over the next couple of years? That's going to be the main question for Chris Greer, Mike McDaniel, and that whole decision um, group. Now, for Agba, Emmanuel Agba, I think that there's a similar question. Can you find somebody to rep- replicate that production for less money or for a similar amount? Um, and you can make that argument with the, some of the free agents available. Um, you know, I, I think that there are some really, really strong free agent candidates who might not or I can say they won't cost $20 million or $16 million. Um, and you can still get similar production. I mean, whether that's Hassan Reddick, Jadavion Clowney, um, some, some other pass rushers out there. I think that those are all really solid pass rushers, but Agba is not, I mean, Agba, you can't sneeze at Agba at all. I mean, again, he's coming off of, off of a career year. Um, I looked up some stats on, um, on Stathead and I found out that Agbo, you know, in the past two seasons, he's one of only seven players who've recorded 18 sacks and 45 quarterback hits. Um, the other six are Aaron Donald, TJ Watt, Miles Garrett, Joey Bosa, Matt Judon, and Trey Hendrickson. So you're talking about like some of the best pass rushers in the NFL. And while Agba doesn't have like the big sack numbers, you know, he, 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 again, his career high is nine sacks. He's not registering double digit sacks and leading the league or at the top of the league in sacks. Um, but, you know, you've heard it a lot from Dolphins coaches. You'll hear it a lot from me. Um, the pass rush impact is not just based off of your sack number. I mean, Agba led defensive linemen in pass deflections with 12. Um, you guys saw it every Sunday. Um, he just always seemed to get his hand hands on the ball. And sometimes that's just as impactful as getting a sack, especially if it's on a critical down, like third down. Um so Agba has definitely earned his money. Um, he's definitely gonna be paid a handsome amount, um, you know, in the next coming in the coming weeks, months. It's just a matter of whether that's with the Dolphins or not. So now we go on to what I would do. Um, I would first tag Mike Gusecki. Um, I would tag Mike Gusecki because I think that at $10.8 million, $11 million, I think that that's a very, very fair number for his production. We just saw uh, Mark Andrews from the Ravens get like $14.3 million a year. Um, 
Uh, another, uh, I think it's Dallas Goddard from the Philadelphia Eagles, who was drafted in the same draft class as Mike Kosecki. He just got $14 million a year. Um, those are all really nice benchmarks for a Mike Kosecki deal. Um, so again, if you're getting him for one year at $11 million, that's great value personally, in my opinion. Um, I know that there's some people saying that he might contest uh, the franchise tag as a tight end. He might say, I deserve to be franchise tagged as a wide receiver. And that's a fair fair point. Um, I'm not sure if Mike Kosecki would win that argument if it like goes to some type of arbitration. In the past, um, Jimmy Graham, you know, contested his tight end franchise tag designation with the Saints because he said, hey, I'm being, I'm putting, I'm lining up outside like a wide receiver, like majority of the time, I'm not lining up next to offensive lineman. I play like a wide receiver. So while my designation and my title is tight end, I really should deserve to get wide receiver money. That's fair. I personally don't think that Mike Kosecki is going to win that argument just because, again, I mean, if you treat him like a wide receiver and then you put his numbers against wide receivers, I mean, they come down fairly. I mean, they're, you know, they don't match up to the, the best wide receivers in the NFL. Um, I, I just, so I just don't think he's going to win that, um, that if you try to contest that, I don't think he's going to win that argument. Now, there's potential that maybe they come to some agreement on both sides um, and, you know, he gets like a slight bump in his pay. You know, I know a couple of years back that happened with um, Terrell Suggs and the Ravens where there was some contention over whether he should be labeled a defensive end or a linebacker um, because I believe defensive ends get more money. Um, and he came to an agreement with the NFLPA, his agency and the Ravens where he got a little bit more money. Um, maybe that happened for Mike Kosecki. And even in that case, maybe you say he gets a one year franchise tag and he gets 13 or $14 million. I'm fine with that. I mean, again, that puts him on par with his counterparts. Um, should Mike Kosecki get paid more than Mark Andrews, more than um, Dallas Goddard? I mean, at the end of the day, it depends on how the market stacks up. And if there's somebody who, you know, if he reaches the open market and there's somebody that wants to pay him that much, that's how much he's worth. So I'm not going to say a guy shouldn't get his money. I'm not going to say he's worth this, less than this, more than this. At the end of the day, it's not what I think. It's what the market thinks. Um, so if you can get him for on the original franchise tag, 11 mil, or even come to an agreement and get him at 14 mil, I think that that's a really, really good production, um, a really good value for the production of one of the better pass catching tight ends in the NFL. So that leaves Agba. What would you do with Agba? I take my chance with Emmanuel Agba. Um, I, I will say, again, while the while the market decides how much money um, a player is worth, if I'm the Dolphins, I'm thinking that that 20 mil um, price tag for one year is probably a little bit too steep. I mean, when you get to $20 million a year, you're talking TJ Watt, Miles Garrett, Joey Bosa territory. Um, and again, while I did throw just throw out that stat that Agba is one of only uh, seven players with 18 sacks and 45 quarterback hits um, in, you know, in the past two seasons, um, still, you, you, you still would probably say maybe he's not on, on that level as a, you know, entire in its entirety as a player um so i really would take my chance with, with uh emmanuel agba um he hasn't really talked too much or he didn't talk too much during the season about where those contract negotiations stand but i would like to think that the dolphins would want to get a guy like him um back in the fold you know they got him on a really cheap high value deal um he outperformed his contract for sure um he's a leader he's good in the locker room he's definitely a type of guy that you want on your team and kind of ushering this new era with mike mcdaniel um i know pro football focus put out their list of you know top um free agents and 
predictions on contract lengths. And for Emmanuel Agba, they predicted him getting a three-year deal worth $15.5 million a year. I think that's a really, really solid number for his production. Again, a team might um, come in free agency and blow that offer, blow that that number out of the water and you might end up in a bidding war. Um, but if you can get him for 15, $16 million on a, on a roughly three-year deal, you know, you got to remember he, he's just 28. Um, I think that's a really, really strong deal. Um, and one thing about the franchise tag that I want to note is that um, while it's 20, about 20, $21 million this year, um, you know, you might have a situation where you, you know, you, I mean, essentially you're kicking the can down another year. It's a one-year deal. So you have to address it the next year. If the Dolphins for some reason wanted to franchise tag uh, Agba again, um, it's going to be 120% of what he was making the previous year. So it's, it's, it's a pretty steep jump um, in, in, in contract, uh, you know, the contract money and, you know, the Dolphins might not be in a position next year to do that. So again, I think you take your chances with Agba, if you can't come to an agreement on a, on a, on a deal, I think that, um, you know, there are some other options in free agency who can provide similar production, um, at a, at a cheaper price tag. Um, the NFL draft seems like it's a really strong draft for edge rushers, pass rushers. Um, there's a couple that's been linked to the dolphins at the 29th overall pick, or even in day two, I think you can find some really, um, strong, strong picks there. Um, and again, you know, this defense is a, it's, it's a unique defense because, a lot of the pressures and the sacks and the quarterback hits that you see, they're kind of based off um, the scheme, you know, where, you know, you, you're blitzing heavy, you're freeing up somebody with the open, open lane um, to the rusher, or they're getting one-on-one, um, one-on-one coverage. Um, so I do think that again, while Emmanuel Agba is a really good player, he's done some great things in Miami. I think you can find other people to fit that system and to provide similar production. Um, that's going to be for the Dolphins to um, decide at the end of the day. Um, like I said, they have 55, roughly close to $60 million in projected cap room. So whatever, whatever route they go, um, there's going to have a lot of money left to rebuild that offensive line. Like I know so many Dolphin fans have been talking about, maybe get another wide receiver, maybe add a middle linebacker. You know, this team is, is you know, a ways away from contending. They got to make a lot of moves. Um, I won't say splash moves, but they got to make some smart moves in the offseason. It's going to be a really big and important one for Mike McDaniel in his first offseason as head coach of the Dolphins. Uh, that brings us to the end of another edition of the Dolphins in Debt podcast. I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, again, we got a lot uh, going on this offseason. Next week, we got the combine. I'm going to be headed out to Indianapolis. Um, so next week, we're going to be talking a lot about some draft prospects to, uh, to monitor, as well as any Dolphins news that pops up in the meantime. Um, but until then, you guys take care. And I'll talk to you later.